Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles' leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Margot Siegel was born in 1932 in Germany, and as a child, she went on to live in Paris and then New York as her family fled from Nazi occupation. She describes herself as always being somewhat of an outsider, having experienced the shock of new countries and cultures, and then becoming an architect in a time where it was highly unusual to be a woman and an architect. She attended Pratt Institute, graduating with her architecture degree in 1955. Finding that others weren't giving her the opportunities she desired, she formed her own practice in 1972 and volunteered her time to obtain a HUD grant to form the Los Angeles Community Design Center. After 14 years on her own, with clients like the YWCA and East 60th Street Community Center, Margot partnered with Kate Diamond and Norma Scleric to form Siegel Scleric Diamond Architects, which later became Siegel Diamond Architects until 1999. The firm was celebrated for being one of the largest women-owned architecture firms in the nation at its time. Margot also played a formative role in West Hollywood's history as she formed a committee to draft its first community plan, which was later adopted when the city was incorporated. If all that wasn't enough, she was also in the ski patrol, was the first woman board member and officer of the AIA LA, was the treasurer of the AWA, and was a founding board member of the CWED, as well as having taught at various places. I am truly amazed at all of Margot's accomplishments. And I hope you enjoy learning more about her. When I came to the U.S., I was about nine, nine and a half. But it was tough because I didn't speak any English. And the local grade school, there was nobody there with whom I could communicate because I spoke French and some German. So they said, well, we'll put her in a lower grade. So I should have been in the fifth grade. They put me in the third. But the worst part was the kids would make fun of me. You know, they would say, Parlez-vous And then they would, you know, be hysterical. So Aww. one day we would sit in a row and, you know, the questions would be, it came to my turn, I knew the answer, so I said it, of course, with an accent. So the entire room looked at me. And that's the last time I spoke because, you know, <laughs> I, I was shy and I, you know, I didn't understand any of that. So it was a bit stressful. But when you get picked out of one culture and dropped into another, there's a lot of adjustments, you know. Sure. I've been here long enough, you know, now I don't have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But um, how do you think that affects your personality or your approach to life that you had that experience? To this day, I'm a bit of an outsider. I don't exactly fit in. Uh, well, I went into architecture, so of course, you right. know, I had a career at a time when women didn't do that. And I happened to choose a iconically male career. Eh. So I, <laughs> so you know, uh, when I showed up in the job, and the contractor realized that I was the architect, they looked at me, "What, really?" <laughs> you know? yeah. And then they would take me aside and they would say, "You know, if you got a male partner, you would do better." And you know, even workers, occasionally, I had one guy call down to me and say, "I want to let my wife do that." Fortunately, I'm not married. <laughs> you know, things have changed a great deal. Women are still not exactly on a par with men, but it's a vast, vast difference. Uh, when I first I came to California, I first lived in San Diego a couple of years, and I came here to Los Angeles, and the AWA at the time was doing an annual survey to see which 
few offices would hire women, and there were maybe two or three offices that would consider a woman. Oh, my gosh. You know, there was a job opening, right? So you go in, file out an application, and one time a secretary took me aside and said, don't waste your time. You're just going to toss it. I worked for a small office at one point, and at the time I was licensed and I was a member of the AI. So the AIA would have functions, right? So there was a, a dinner or something, and I came, and it was a round table like this, and I was sitting there with my husband, who kept saying, no, she's the architect, <laughs> <laughs> and my boss and his wife, and some other people. And he was really upset that one of his employees and a woman was sitting at his table like an equal. What? Mm-hmm. He just couldn't accept it because I was a woman. Wow. And one time, you know, you do proposals. So sure. I did a proposal for the Navy. It was the first time I had tried for that. And we made the grade to be interviewed. I was going to go up with my landscape architect, who happened to also be a woman, because we had gone over and looked at the site. So I called another architect that I knew had done work for the Navy, and I asked for some advice. And so I was told, take a good old boy with you. You're much more likely to get the project. So I took my structural engineer, who looked like a good old boy. Uh. So I got the project because they figured if she messes up, there's somebody there who will keep her on the... (laughs) Wow. Right? There was a time when... I was, again, shortlisted for a project in California for some state agency. I forget what it was. Um, in any case, so after the interview, I, it was down to two. The guy on the agency said, well, you you interviewed much better, but you're not going to get it because the other one's a guy, and they feel more comfortable with a man. Oh, Wow. Nowadays, that might be true. They would never tell you. Yeah, they would never tell you. Wow. (laughs) So despite all that, I mean, you did it, you know? Well, if I had been born a man, it would have been much easier, and I'm sure I would have done better. I mean, it was just, you know... It's the old saying, you've got to be twice as good to be considered equal in your performance. I mean, today, there are a lot of women in every field, uh, and it's a lot easier. But if you look at major firms or corporations, how many women are at the upper executive level? At least there's a sprinkling, you know. Mm-hmm. But like anything else, it's a form of prejudice, and it's, it um, takes a long time for that to die out. You said to me before in an email, and, and back in 1976, actually, there was a video from a woman in architecture panel at SciArc, and you were there uh, with some other people like Ina Dubnoff. Mm-hmm. So from your email recently and also at, at that point, you had kind of said, I don't think there's really a difference between men and women and how we work. Right. I think it's just uh, the prejudices that make it different. Right. Um, yeah. Do you? What do you think? Look, I don't think you can generalize, you know? Uh, but we do. We have a tendency to. We base it on our past experience or on lack. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I've never met anybody from Hawaii, I still have an image. What do I think Hawaiians are like? Mm-hmm. If I've met some Hawaiian, it'll be a lot more realistic. But, you know, and then there's also whoever's in power doesn't like to share it or relinquish it if they don't have to, right? So you got a double whammy. It's a reality. You just got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. It just makes it tougher. But as far as look, there are different personalities. Some men are sensitive. Some men are emotional. Others are not. Is every woman that way? Personally, I'm more thing oriented than people oriented. But people generalize. Oh, you're a woman. 
It doesn't happen to apply to me, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, most women don't wind up in the ski patrol. But because <laughs> my parents skied, and I was on skis at the age of three, I ski. But if you generalize, uh, <laughs> how did that happen, right? Right. So, again, I think as an architect or any other professional, it's what the individual is like. I really resent generalizations because in every case it would exclude me, right? Sure. So I just, I don't think that, you know, you and I are women. Are we going to approach the project similarly? I don't know. Most likely not because... We're different people. Exactly. <laughs> we probably share a lot of interests since we both picked the same profession. But, yeah. you know, yeah. if we both had to design the same project... I'm sure they would come out, the solutions would be different. Unless it so happened that you and I are very much alike. But not because you're a woman and I'm a woman, right? Right. right. So what has your experience been as a woman in architecture? You know, it's definitely not been as hard as yours. I didn't realize until I was embarrassingly older, <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that um, I looked around and realized that things hadn't been equal, but I hadn't just, just hadn't been aware that, yes, in some larger firms that I'd worked in, there weren't many women at the top. It's changing, but, you know, it, it, at the time it wasn't, I just didn't see that most of the women were not architects. In school, I, I did have some women there. There weren't as many as men. And my class was more female than, than male, which was pretty incredible. So I looked around and I was just like, you know, I don't, I never had any people in my life who I could kind of model my life after. Looking around and identifying amazing women who have, in my mind, made it. <laughs> and, and I thought, I have no idea what their lives look like. I have no idea how they did that. I, but it would be useful to learn. That's one of the difficulties of the lack of mentoring. Yes. Right? For example, in firms where I worked, I would never be in on a client meeting, you know. Usually, you kind of mentor people and bring them up. In one firm where I worked six years, a substantial amount of time, they promoted a guy who had far less experience than I did over me. And I said, why? They never really answered me, but, you know, of the people who went through that firm, I eventually did much better. First of all, I got on the AIA board long before I opened my firm, you know, and then eventually I opened an office and all of that. The majority of their employees, who were all men, never did that. Mm -hmm. So why would they promote? Right. I wanted to open my own firm, or at least join somebody. So every so often the AIA, there'd be a message, you know, I'm looking for a partner or something like that. And there was one firm I w was ideal for what they needed. So I spoke to the principal, and he said, I'm sorry, but I don't think my clients would like to talk to a woman. So I said, well, you might be right, but... Would you give it a try? <laughs> so after we talked for a while, he said, all right, let's be honest. It's me. I just can't accept it. Mm. So to run a firm on your own is, is really tough, right? Mm -hmm. So I always wanted a partner. And eventually, I partnered with a couple of women. Mm -hmm. Just because I never found a man that would, yeah. you know? That, but, I mean, you were on your own for 14 years. That's, That's a long right. time. <laughs> well, it wasn't through choice. Uh-huh. You know? It really wasn't. You have a partner. You can discuss things. Each of you brings something to it. Also, if you're alone, let's say I want to go on a vacation. Who's going to run the office? You know? I mean, yeah. And it's nice to be able to discuss things because there are a lot of decisions to be made. Sure. And I was married, and my husband was very supportive, but I didn't really want to get him into it. He wasn't an architect. He was an engineer in a totally different area than I was. He tried to help me from the business sense because he understood that 
actually better than I did. But everything else, you know, so it's kind of tough to be on your own. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I knew Norma. I don't know how I met her through AIA or something or another. So I called her one day to ask her to lunch, and she said that there was a problem at Gruen where she worked for many years. And I said, oh, would you like to join me? And she she said, well, let's talk about it. So we were going to have lunch, and she shows up, and Kate shows up. Uh-huh. I knew Kate, but only casually. And it seems that Kate had always looked up to Norma and found out from Norma she was going to meet with me, and Kate wasn't, her firm wasn't promoting her. Same story, right? So she showed up. That's how I turned out to have two women partners because no man would partner with me. Wow. <laughs> so, so. I, I, would, I would think partnering with anyone, man or woman, would be, could be difficult. It should, certainly. I mean, not all marriages work out. Right. This is a kind of marriage. You spend actually a good proportion of your waking hours with your partners, right? Right. So, yeah, sure, not all partnerships work out. And you can have different kinds of partnerships. You know, years later, I thought about it, you know, Kate and I were very good. Norma and I, we... We had some differences of how you do things, okay? She came from big firm background. And so, for example, you have to review a set of drawings. According to her, it should take two weeks to review. I said, why? I could take a big set of drawings, go through them in a day. She was used to certain procedures that you do in big offices. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. In a, you know. You also don't have people you can assign things to. You've got to do a lot of things yourself. Kate's experience was more smaller offices. So, you know. In any case, as a partnership, we worked out because we complemented each other. We had different kinds of experience. But the funny thing is that we were not really personal friends. Huh. I learned that you could work with somebody very well. Yeah. You could be on really good terms with them, but you might not share. Like, for example, I like the theater. Uh-huh. Neither Kate nor Norma were particularly interested, right? Uh, so outside the office, I would go to play, but inviting them was going to work. So... In the office, it was fine. We were on really good terms. You know, Norma used to have these big parties in in her garden. And, of course, I was invited. You know, I was friends with her husband and all of that. But we wouldn't just call each other up and say, hey, let's do something together, even lunch or things like that. And to this day, I'm definitely on good terms with Kate, but we never meet just to socialize. It seems clean that way, in a way. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But it surprised me, you know. So somebody pointed out that you could work very well with somebody for 20 years and still not be personal friends. Sure. Yeah. Before you became partners with them, how big was your practice, and then how big was it? And oh, my practice that. was small. It wasn't a big... I mean, I was a single person. It was really hard to get projects. Mm-hmm. As I said, uh, being a woman didn't make life easier. The, for example, some clients like Los Angeles International, mm-hmm. the airport, they wouldn't even send me proposals. So how did you get that work? Uh, well, uh the time they were doing the set the label roadway and all of that in, pre- in preparation for the Olympics the, in 84, they were mandated to hire minority or women-owned businesses. Oh. So this big engineering firm approached me and said, look, we've got to give you, I don't want it, 2%. We don't know what you're going to do for us, but we got to find something for you to do. Got it. So they assigned me the cooling towel. There was a minor part of this huge project. So they met the requirements. They hired me and paid me 2% or whatever. So 
I designed the cooling tower. So it was built. It was on time, within budget. Uh-huh. Actually, there were two other little pieces. So I guess the airport decided my projects I was responsible for had worked out okay. There wasn't a disaster. (laughs) So then they started to send me RFPs. Oh, good. That doesn't mean I got pride, but at least they they put me on the mailing list. (laughs) So I built it up. I mean, I started with smaller projects because I'd done some volunteer work, and the the county's Community Development Commission, there's my memory, I, I forget exactly. They would get these little entities, like a boys' club or something like that, that need some work done. And through the Community Design Center, which I established, I had volunteered on a couple of things. And then mm. when the clients got some money mm-hmm. and needed to hire somebody, I started getting those little projects. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I got bigger and bigger ones, but it started because of contacts I had made as a volunteer. Right. So, and the reason Kate and I did a business plan, and the reason we thought it was good to have Norma, because she had a track record of administering big projects Mm -hmm. while she was a girl. Mm -hmm. She wasn't a partner, she was an employee, but she was the project manager. Mm-hmm. So when we would be interviewed, like we were interviewed for a civic center project in Longdale, uh, it wasn't that big. It was maybe a couple million dollars. And they said, you're just a bunch of women. What experience have you got? So we trotted out Norma, and she says, well, Terminal 1 at the airport was $4 million, and then, you know, so she... She wasn't a designer. She couldn't have designed herself out of a paperback. But she had the other kind of experience. And because of that, we started to get little by little bigger projects. Uh-huh. She also did something else. We were being interviewed for a project, and they said, well, what will your fee be? And before Kate and I could say something, Norma popped in, and she asked for about three times what we were. And Kate and I (laughs) said, ah, that does it. We're done for. They accepted it. Because she knew what bigger firms would charge. Yes. Right? So, again, that's a partnership. It was a complimentary thing. She had certain skills. Kate was a good designer, and I was good at the practical things, you know, organizing. So we complemented it, which is what a partnership should be, because if the partners have the same skills... Your business is always going to be like... Right. So you really ideally should have a person who's good in design, one is good for marketing, and one is good for administration, so that you have all the skills, because... It's really rare to have a single person who's good in all, right. all three. Right. So. And coming out of school, really, they've only taught you design. <laughs> I mean. That's the other thing. Uh, I lectured at um, Pomona also at one oh, point. Oh, okay. And what I did was the project administration because I realized I learned nothing uh-huh. about that in school. So I felt that... It would be really useful for students to have some realistic idea because, you know, you do this beautiful drawing and a design. It looks gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Can you build it? And can you handle all the issues that come up Mm -hmm. during construction, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd never taught before, but I figured, you know, I know what I had to learn. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate at one point... I had a really hard time getting a job after graduation because offices just didn't hire women. It was too distracting. I had a summer job one time for an engineering company that was at the time designing the New York State Thruway. And I worked there for two months in the summer, and I didn't succeed in distracting a single man from doing... (laughs) His work. 
which was disappointing because I was told that's why they don't hire women. (laughs) 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 And at the time, across the river in New Jersey, there were some aircraft plants and they had a lot of layoffs. So there were a lot of men looking for jobs. So when I would apply, they'd say, well, we'd rather give it to a man because he has to support his family. I said, well, I'm supporting my husband. He's going through grad school. So I'm supporting my household. There were just a lot of uh, attitudes. Sure. And in San Diego, I finally got a job with a guy who came from the East Coast because in the East Coast, you could get a job. They just wouldn't promote you. You'd stay at the it was literally a one-man office, and he thought he had a girl Friday. So I said, well, I can type, but I use a lot of paper. It was a horrible typist. Part of it was that I didn't want to be turned yeah. into a secretary, right? Yeah. So anyway, because he was a one-man office, I got to do everything. I designed things, then did the working night, and then went into the field, and... Oh, saw the construction. I mean, there was only him and me. Right. So he didn't have any choice, right? But it was a tremendously useful experience. So later when I took my the orals for the exam, I actually had some construction experience. It was funny because they said, ah, a girl. <laughs> so they asked me some questions about construction. Well, I just was able to answer just like that. And they're not supposed to tell you, you know, whether you passed or not, but I could tell. And at the end, one then said, well, young lady, what are you going to do next? I said, well, of course, I'm going to go home and crochet, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is why I went through all this, right? And, you know, not every architect likes to do construction supervision at requires different kind of skills. And again, we all have our strengths, our weaknesses. Architecture gives you a lot of options. It's different from most other fields because you can be an architect mm-hmm. and do so many different things, right? Right. Actually, my original major was fine arts. I wanted to be a sculptor, which is not really... A, good way to make a living. But in college, I was in the drama club, and I was directing some plays, and I had two or three students who were in the architectural department. I had enrolled as an interior designer, figuring I could open a shop, have a studio. So I went upstairs to their floor and looked at what they were doing. I said, hmm, this is sculpture on a bigger scale, Mm -hmm. and you could earn a living doing this. Mm -hmm. So I transferred. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea what architecture was, you know, but it's true, right? Yeah. A building is a three-dimensional object, which is what a sculptor is. Sure, yeah. It just also has some functionality, which a sculptor usually has. My father said, it's an awful lot of work. You sure you want to do this? You're going to marry and have a family? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, okay, I won't stand in your way. And funny thing is, my father had a business, and when he needed new stationery, I offered to do the graphics. He wanted a man to do it. Wow. And eventually, he moved his office, and I offered to do the interiors for him. Well, he had a lot of doubt. So I laid it out, you know, selected the furniture, the colors, everything. And when it was finished, he was really nervous. Oh, really? But when people started, his clients came in and said, oh, how nice this is. At that point, he said, oh, my daughter did this. (laughs) But, you know, I was a woman, and he, again, didn't think 
that women could do those things, or, or should. Right. That's so interesting. What did your mom think? My mother was frustrated because she was the youngest. She had three older brothers, so she didn't get to go to college. Uh-huh. And she had for her time some fairly radical ideas. She wanted to study chemistry because she thought that foods could affect your health, which at that time nobody thought of. Oh. Yeah, so she was frustrated because, I mean, the boys, of course, should be educated, but women, you know, they stay home and have families. <clears throat> so she was pretty sympathetic to what I was trying to do. That I got a chance to do something she hadn't been able to. So, yeah, she was all for it. First year at Pratt, we had two three-dimensional design. So my father came in and saw what I was working on. I had some blocks of clay. And he said, that's homework. <laughs> I said, yeah, it isn't as easy as you think. Would you like to try it? He took the clay and came back. It wasn't too bad. And then another time my mother came in and saw what I was sketching, and she watched for a while, and then she made a suggestion. It was a good one. I was upset. Here I was trying to do my own thing. I picked architecture. It was nobody in my entire family who had done anything remotely like it. And now my mother just walks in. <laughs> and see something that uh-huh. I didn't. That's pretty well, neat though. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, you know, nobody knows what I'm doing. I have my own thing. Yeah. They can't interfere. <laughs> you know, it's like this when you grow up, you want to be independent, right? Uh-huh. But I guess I was really good at three-dimensional visualization, and apparently I inherited that because (laughs) both my parents seemed to have had it too, or they, you know. They could understand what you were doing, at least. Yes, right. That's rare. (laughs) (laughs) But the attitude, you know, with my father, when I passed my licensing exam and all that, my mother in particular was really, really proud of me. Oh, of course. So... It took a long time for my father to accept the selection I had made. Wow. But your husband, I mean, he must have been incredibly supportive well, of your... I was married twice. Okay. The first one absolutely was not. Oh. He was, which is why eventually I left him. But my second husband, whom I was married for 40 years until he died, was totally supportive. But he also let me do my thing, and then try to interfere. He would help me when I asked, like when computers first came out. You know, things like that, Mm -hmm. he would help. He had good advice as far as business matters because he had experience in that. Uh, But in general, he was totally supportive. You know, if I accomplished something, he was proud of me. Yeah. So that's why my second marriage was very good. My first one was not, (laughs) because my first husband was jealous. He wanted all my attention on him. And as you know, if you're an architect, obviously you got to pay a lot of attention to your work. Right. Absolutely. So uh, I was fortunate that way. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, we had our areas where he was responsible for this, I was and. We kept out of each other's way in the areas we'd agreed on. In fact, when we decided to buy this, mm-hmm. of course, I remodeled it. Mm-hmm. Well, Bud was the toughest client I ever had. <laughs> he would say, hmm, you think there's going to be enough counter space in the kitchen? Is there going to be enough light? Uh, uh, uh. He's an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it turns out, because of that, I double-lamped, which would have been single-lamp. Yeah. In the kitchen, you could do surgery (laughs) with the amount of light in there. But about a month or so after we moved in, he said, you know what? Actually works pretty well. (laughs) 
<laughs> My husband's the same way. He's a, a an aerospace engineer. Um, so it sounds like a lot of your opportunities you really made for yourself. Yes. There was nobody saying, go do architecture. They were telling you quite the opposite. Well, yes. Uh, I, I told you I started with interior design, and then when I transferred, I'd been auditing a class in philosophy or something. It was nothing to do with architecture, but it happened to be taught by the chief critic at Pratt. So I thought, well, I'll go to Topton. And he said, women don't belong in architecture. I can't prevent you from transferring, but if you do, I definitely won't help you. And he kept his word. There were two or three women out of a hundred, and the women always had a much tougher time. I nearly got expelled once because I went to the dean and protested, and he couldn't exactly expel me because I come from Cornell. I had scholarships. So he failed me in the mechanical equipment class. So I'd take it over. But this guy, the critic, made it really tough for the few women who were there. And, you know, I really hated him. I once met him in the hall, and I had the biggest impulse to punch him. Oh, wow. So I turned around and ran away because, you know, that would not have had good results. (laughs) The women had a much rougher time. And when we had team projects, it was really hard to get into a team because it was a disadvantage for the team because the critics would be rougher. Most of them, they were a couple that weren't, but certainly in Breaker's class, you had a woman there, that team would get a really bad mark. So it sounds like, you know, you were really just determined. That's the only thing got me through. I was very stubborn. I wouldn't give up. Well, and I think you were also very brave. Probably, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. It was worth it to me. I mean, this is what I wanted to do. And um, What did you like the most about being an architect and having your own business? Well, it's three-dimensional. I also like to solve functional problems. You know, if I have a client, I try to find out how do they really want to operate, what are their fundamental needs, and then you've got to sometimes be a bit of a psychologist because if they're institutional clients, that's different. They're more sophisticated. But if you have, say, an individual wants a home, they don't talk the same language. They right. bring you pictures and stuff like that. So you got to learn to ask some basic questions like, do you entertain? Do you like privacy? You know, so that you know how to approach the project. Now, if you have an institutional governmental project, they bring you a program. But even with institutional clients, you sometimes have to go through that. Like to say, I did a a good deal of university work. They do have a formal program. But even so, you have to find out what are the relationships within how do they relate to other departments. I mean, all the things that you should know about before you even lift a pencil, right? I mean, at that time we sketched. I still don't think that you can do as well on a computer as you can with a pencil at the beginning. The problem with a computer is whatever you do, it looks very pretty. So you tend to think that it's better than it looks. And you can have a beautiful drawing and essentially it doesn't work, but how can you doubt this gorgeous drawing, right? You know, can you even build it? So those are the kind of things you learn. Uh, but what I used to do was go back after the project was occupied and talk to the people who were there and say, how's it working out? What do you like? What don't you like? If you had to do it over, what would you ask? So eventually that became sort of an accepted thing that you should do, but at the time it wasn't. You know, my projects, the beginning projects were small enough that I had no problem doing that. And even when they got larger, what happened was you had to talk to people at different levels. 
because the person sitting at a desk might have an entirely different view than the manager of the department or the university itself. Right. You know? So who are you designing for? You really have to design for all of them, right? right? But you might literally conform to every item in the program, and you might still have a facility that really doesn't work. Yeah, right. sure. And another thing you learn, I actually learned this early on from some of the workmen. He said, this detail is unbuildable. I said, why? He says, because to do it, we have to use tools. You didn't leave enough space to get the tool in. <laughs> yeah. Again, something you don't learn in school, right? Uh-huh. Or it's very hard to learn that in yes. school. Yes. Well, it depends on who teaches you. I mean, um, the design part is the more romantic one. That's what everybody pushes. Look, we're a great design school. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so I've got this Matisse painting. Okay, that's my building. All right. Mm -hmm. Can you actually construct that? Right. (laughs) You know? (laughs) It looks gorgeous. Yeah, and that's a huge part of it. That's right. That's the majority of our work. Right. And it's not as glamorous, but it's the foundation, right? If you don't have a proper foundation, the building is not going to stand up. Yeah. So we were talking before about how people approach a project, whether men or women. Uh-huh. Why did I think of it? And sometimes my male bosses didn't. It's not because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. And they did not not think of it because they were men. I mean, right. Right. It's just an attitude how you approach things. For example, in the beginning when I had small projects, I would tell the contractor, I'd tell them two things. First of all, I'd say, I'm an architect, you guys are contractors. I know about my field and you know about yours. So my drawings, I can guarantee they're not perfect. You're going to find something wrong. In the same way, you're not going to do everything perfectly either. But hopefully, when we're done, we'll have a project we can both be proud of. Mm -hmm. So if you have any question, please call. I'd rather have you call me 10 times than miss the one question. Right. And if you have any suggestions for how to do things better, please tell me. You may be perfectly right, or there may be a reason that you don't know why it's this way. At the end of my projects, I would invariably have the contractor say, look, if you have any other projects, please call me. I'd like to bid on them. Just because the attitude, because occasionally a contractor would tell me about an architect who insisted everything be done as it's drawn. Uh And he sometimes showed me some really... Right. Bad goofs. Right, right. Where obviously the detail was wrong. It didn't work. But the architect, look, it's my drawing. You signed the contract to do this. Right. Yeah, there was no back and forth and learning from each other. Right. But in any case, nobody's perfect. Sure. You know? And that's the other thing I would tell the contractor, look, if you try to take shortcuts, I've got a couple of things in here. I can pull a choke chain. I don't want to have to do it. I hope I don't have to. But, you know, for example, you say the paint's got to be so many millimeters. Nobody comes and does that. But if there is some kind of problem and the contractor is trying to shortcuts, I could hold you strictly Mm -hmm. to the specs. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. If you think there's something unreasonable, let's discuss it. I mean, that sort of relationship, I think, takes a lot of confidence. How do you think you got your confidence in working on these types of projects and having those types of relationships with the contractors? It just seemed logical. Okay. (laughs) No, it just made sense. It makes my life much easier if it can be a cooperative relationship because it's true. A construction contractor will always know more about construction than I will. Sure. On the other hand, I know the codes way better than they do. I will have done research on materials and other stuff, and I also know what the client wants better than they do. So if you come to something that doesn't match up, 
it's better to try to figure it out together than use a hammer and, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. I, uh, it just seemed like a, a practical approach. It was natural. Yeah. Let me ask you, we've been talking a lot about your work as an architect. You also did a lot of other things. Right. For instance, you said that um, you had obtained a federal grant from HUD to establish the LACDC. Can you tell me more about that? Well, it started at the time there was a national movement to do community design centers where professionals would contribute their time to local community groups. Mm -hmm. And Los Angeles AIA did have a committee, and they had a relationship with USC, with the students. At one point, they had a couple of classes doing that. But it really wasn't on firm footing because, you know, the university didn't yeah. really want to spend time and effort on that. And, you know, they would fund it one year and not the next. So my husband at the time was also in aerospace, so he knew about proposals and all of that. So I decided to write a proposal. I'd never done that. So Bud brought me examples of aerospace proposals just so I could see what mm -hmm. a proposal looked like, right? Yeah. And then I started to write it, and he says, you need more bullshit. <laughs> you know, I was being realistic, and I, he yeah. says, no, you got to put some drama into it. He was better at that than I was. But at the time, what I was asking was pretty modest, $25,000, uh, because I'd gotten input I did a board of directors. I had input from all the local schools and some other groups, the AIA and so forth. I wanted to show that it wasn't just my own isolated idea, that we had right. a lot of support and that technically we could get students who were or whoever to volunteer. So I put this together with Bud's help, and then I also needed some endorsements. At the time... We had a Republican governor, was it Reagan? I'm a Democrat. But at the time, the president was also a Republican. I think it was Nixon. And somebody offered to get me an endorsement. At first, I didn't want to accept it, but God said, look, what's your objective? You want to get this? At the time, Washington was trying to get California to cooperate with them in something. So my proposal came from California. Mm -hmm. So if the governor of California endorsed it, I would definitely increase my chances of getting the grant. Got it. So I did, and I did get a letter of endorsement. Not that I think he knew anything about it, but somehow, <laughs> you know, you know, you have friends sure. and do things. I mean... It wasn't going to harm them, so they figured, what's the risk? Sure. <laughs> so we got the grant. And it was $25,000, and what I used it for was to hire a director because I was doing this all on my own with sure. a committee of volunteers. It's taking a lot of time. So that's how that came about. Wow. And, you know, one of the volunteer things I did was the East 60 Community Center Improvement Club. Uh -huh. They were a group of homeowners in Watts. What they were telling people, it was improved, don't move. And eventually the city gave them a grant, but they were supposed to uh, get paid at regular intervals. Mm -hmm. And the city was sometimes slow. Yes. So... I said, look, when there were city council meetings, I would say, we need some people from the community to go down there. So I said, look, on Tuesday morning from 10 to 11, every 10 minutes, somebody should call the council member. They'll get the message. You don't have to say much. You just have to say I'm from East 60. Okay. So once they start to get a bunch of calls, mm -hmm. well, they learned that very quickly, and the next time the city was slow, they didn't even ask me. They just, <laughs> you know? And then when we wanted to build the community center, there was a factory across the street that donated a piece of land. It was Emerson Electric. So we had the land, but we didn't have funding to build it. 
So again, the chair of the group was a woman, and I said, okay, we've got to ask various contractors to contribute labor and materials because mm-hmm. we just don't have the money. Mm-hmm. And so we were both embarrassed. We had never asked anybody in our life for a handout. Sure. I said, well, it's not for us, remember? Yes. So, again, we all started making calls, and we got, it was a small project, but we did get various contractors to donate time and materials and volunteer labor, and so we got a built, right? Wow. So this group would now learn the process, and in the future, when they had problems, they could address it themselves. Sure. And it was a gang neighborhood. It was all black. And I would go there at all times of day or night. And it never occurred to me to be afraid. I didn't even realize they were gangs. But the word had gotten out that when this young white woman comes by, don't touch her because... She's helping. And the facility was never vandalized, which in that neighborhood was... Again, pretty unusual. But even the gangs knew that this was theirs. Yeah. And you don't touch it. Yeah. So you never had to post guards or stuff like that. The woman who was the chair of the club was um, working at LA Unified as a dietitian or I don't know, something like that. But none of them had any political experience whatsoever. And neither did I. But, you know, you kind of learn. I knew more about official things than they did. So, no, we remained friends for years after that. Um, I would go by sometime, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, later, actually, they did get some money from the community bulletin department to do some other stuff. And at that time, I actually got paid for doing something. (laughs) But, again, you know, that's... One of the things that, because I started as a volunteer, I started to get referrals from people one way or the other. But the interesting thing was that basically we had a lot, very different backgrounds, but we had the same objective. So, you know, we were Mm -hmm. able to work together. And again... The committee was all women. Right. Yeah, and I've heard that the this um, community design center had a big ripple effect, too, of just starting other organizations. Oh, the current one does much bigger things. I mean, they do, they, they arrange funding for housing, and which is quite sure. complicated. So, yeah, it affects much larger groups of people. Our initial projects were tiny and isolated, uh-huh. but eventually, yeah. So they got a lot more sophisticated later. (laughs) It seems like you were pretty politically savvy. I mean, the other um, involvement you had was writing the community plan for West Hollywood before it was incorporated and then... Well, uh, (laughs) actually, I wasn't that savvy because I put a committee together and there was a local developer who asked if he could sit it. I said, sure. But I didn't realize that he intended to snap up some properties and build hotels. Oh. And so it was useful for him to know what we were planning so he could do it ahead of the plan being adopted. I found out later that it... Like an ulterior motive or something? Oh, he had, yes. There's a graphic thing like a snake or something. (laughs) But But a couple of years later, I realized that because he had seen what we intended. He had inside knowledge. He could go and do what he wanted. Yeah. But still, I mean, even being in that position to be able to write the policies, I mean. Well, it was a draft. Uh, It was a concept. The county staff hadn't been funded to do it. You know, they had community plans in various places, but Mm -hmm. they didn't have one for this area. They knew what the words should be, So, but we came up with concepts. And, you know, I introduced some concepts that the rest of the committee didn't know, like um, overlay zones. But on this initial thing, 
you know, as an architect, I at least knew something about right. planning. The rest of the committee didn't, but, you know, I explained things. I said, you know, we have an issue here. We don't have enough parking. You know, we have traffic. We have strip development. How do you deal with it? Let's try for some solutions. And the other thing, at the time, when we moved to West Hollywood, we lived a few blocks away. And there was a planning group. When I found out about it, I joined it. And the head of it, after about a year or so, he wanted to retire. So he asked me to be the chair. At that time, I just started my office. And it would have been a lot of work. So I asked Bud, would you be the chair? And he kind of looked at me. I said, try it. You don't have to do it, you know? Well, Bud did become the chair, and he was way better than I was at getting people together. And, you know, I would explain some of the planning strategies, and the most significant thing was we have a lot of small lots here that were zoned R3. So developers would buy up a bunch and put up a big building. And Bud pointed out that if they agree to be down zone to R1, their properties would be way more valuable in a couple of years because there are so few R1, you know, single-family homes are in greater demand. And he said, look, a developer is going to pay you X for an R3 property. But you're going to get twice as much in a few years if you're an R1 because these lots are being bought up and are disappearing. And he actually convinced the homeowners in that area to voluntarily agree to downzone. So this entire area called the Norma Triangle uh-huh. was downzoned. Oh, so that's why there's such a weird mix of... Um like towers and single-family homes in West Hollywood. Right. Eventually, once we had the community plan, a draft one, uh, the next thing is that normally it has to be presented to county planning commission, which meets downtown. Well, they agreed to come to West Hollywood. The meeting was here. Because it was here, it was very well attended. And speaker after speaker spoke in favor. They'd all been involved in this advisory committee, had gone to all the meetings. So the planning commission said they have never been to a community meeting where it seemed to be like 100% approval. (laughs) So they said, yes, of course. Right. So that's how it became the official plan. Wow. So, and then eventually when the city incorporated it, you know, it was the basis for the plan that they eventually, I mean, they changed it to some extent over time. It was still modifying it like any plan. But basically, it was the original one that we drafted. (laughs) That's really interesting and uh, must have been very rewarding that the two of you did that together. Right. And you lived here and you still live here and you get to see it all. Well, Bud died 20 years after we moved here. So I've been here 29 years. So, you know, West Hollywood has changed. I no longer know absolutely everybody, but... (laughs) (laughs) You used to know everybody? Well, I mean, the city council members, oh. you know, the, the city manager. Actually, I went to City Hall recently because I wanted him to update the um, History of West Hollywood exhibit because Bud did the economic analysis that convinced LAFCO that we would be viable as a city so we could have an election, all of that. And they didn't have that. So when I went over there... Even though I haven't done anything for years, lots of people still knew my name because of various things that I've been doing. So they actually, they said, oh, we don't know that LAFCO even keeps those things, ta-da, ta-da. But a couple of weeks ago, they told me they found it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, it has Bud's name and so forth. And so because I, I wanted his name to be there because he had so much to do with how he got the city started. Right. 
That's pretty incredible. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, you weren't, you know, you weren't native to Los Angeles. You didn't grow up here. How did well, you get all those connections? Before we moved to West Hollywood, I had been a rolling stone, as you could tell. I was born in Dresden, then we went to Paris, then there was the war, ta-da, ta-da. Then we came here, I lived in New York, I went to Boston, then I got married, went to San Diego. And when I got to West Hollywood, you know, when Ben and I went and got involved here, that was the longest time I'd ever lived in a single place in my life. And... It felt like a community because I'd gotten involved and I knew people. Uh So I felt some connection to it. You know, if you grow up in a relatively small town, which West Hollywood is, you get attached to it. At least I did because, you know, it's hard when you grow up from age of four and never have a permanent, you know, where am I from? I can't answer that. But West Hollywood felt like a place I could say I'm from, and I have some connections. Yeah. I think you were really successful at a time when it was much harder. If you were to do it now, how do you think it would be different? Well, women, for one thing, are more accepted. So there probably would be a lot fewer barriers. I think that Whatever profession you're in, you have to build relationships. Architects write proposals, but if you can get referrals, you're much better off. So if you get involved in your community, in various organizations, you'll multiply your contacts, and when it comes time for somebody who needs an architect, your name might come up. Now, the one thing that I was not very good at, my partner Kate, was how to do publicity. In other words, publish your stuff, make sure people hear about it. You put yourself out there, so you have to do that. And today, a lot of it is online, you know, through, mm-hmm. which at the time didn't exist. But So there are other ways, but the concept is the same. Put your name out there so people know you exist. And that's the same as if you're a shoemaker or an architect. It's a similar process, right? Right. I mean, if you want to teach, you want to get appointed, again, (laughs) it's a network thing. And uh, do good work. That's the first thing. And tell people about it. It's really important to hear the stories that you have because for my generation and for generations to come, it's really inspiring and hopeful to see how much change has happened, first of all, thanks to you. Plural, yeah. Yeah, you plural. I think our job is a lot easier. Well, one thing I want to say is that we can't take for granted that women have arrived. And so those right now have to pay attention because we're going to backslide unless Women professionals are aware and keep trying because there still is a glass ceiling. It's a lot higher than it used to be, but it's still there. So that, I think, is the single message I would give to younger people. I think it's an important one. Well, it's true across the board. We have racial prejudice. I don't know how long it's going to take before we get over that. And it's way more widespread then we allow ourselves to acknowledge. I mean, some of it is obvious, but an awful lot isn't. And this attitude about women's place is a similar thing. You know, we have to push very hard to even get where we are. But if we don't keep pushing, it's going to get worse again. And we'll have to do it all over again. Right. And then when you come up against it personally, you really get smacked in the head when, you, when you're not expecting it. Right. <laughs> but if we at least realize that we still can't take anything for granted, and we essentially have to work harder to be considered equal, and that's still true. And it's going to take a while. There's a long tradition about that that's oh, much bigger than just architecture, 
I heard a lecture recently on patriarchy and how it goes back thousands of years. And because in various societies, there were a lot of wars which men fight and women stay at home. The women are kept busy having children. And of course, they can't do certain things. So for thousands of years, we have this kind of tradition. And although today there is way less of this, at least in the United States, but that patriarchal tradition still exists. Uh, you know, my father felt it was not his place to go into the kitchen. But when we came here, my mother had to work, and he said, all right, I need to help her. Well, he said he would dry the dishes. Doesn't sound like much for a man of his background to do anything in the kitchen. That was a huge step. It was a symbolic thing. It's not that he actually did a lot of work, but just a symbol that he recognized that just being fair, he needed to share some of the work that was, quote, woman's work. In his case, you know, it wasn't a power struggle, but as I said before, you have a group that's in control, that has has all the privileges and has the power, they're not going to voluntarily share it. They're not even going to be critical of it, I think. So they may not even really understand how different they have it. Because I don't think a lot of times people stop to think, oh, I have all these things that this person doesn't in a way where they realize how unfair it is. Sometimes people don't even get to that step, I think. Well, saying unfair already means you realize it. Right. Or that you're willing to acknowledge that it exists. Yeah. Um, you know, like a fish doesn't realize there's water till you take the fish out. And I think that people are in a more privileged position. It's like the fish in water. Yeah, that's how the world is. And yeah. Hopefully, eventually, we're going to continue to make progress. Right. I mean, not everybody's equally talented. Not everybody's equally good at everything. But people should have equal opportunity. I mean, in a real across-the-board sense. I mean, if you have the opportunity, you can try. If you're good, you'll succeed. If you're not so good, you'll have to find something else. But at least you get to have a shot. That's all we can ask for, I think. <laughs> well, that's a lot, actually. That's enormous, because yeah. think of a lot of situations where people never get to even try or don't even realize, which is worse, mm -hmm. that there could be another way. Well, hopefully we're changing it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. And that's our show. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Margot Siegel, or listen to previous episodes, please visit our website at www.xx-la.com. And hey, listen up. If you are interested in podcasting or you know someone whose story you really want to share, reach out to me. I'm looking for people to co-host or guest host episodes of the show. I think it would be really interesting to hear more viewpoints and broaden the discussion. So reach out. You can find my contact information on the website, or follow me on social media at XXLA Podcast. Thanks for listening.